Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garrison from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the vast evacuated San Fernando Valley. This is Postmortem. I wish this were a utopia, and it could be. Our genre is one of the most diverse and encouraging in film and books, but I really hate categorization. To put someone in a box based on gender, geography, race, or age seems not only silly, but insulting. It is a shame to have to bring attention to the fact that men easily outnumber women in the world of filmmaking. A filmmaker is judged by his or her or their film, not by their body parts. To refer to someone as a woman director, an African-American director, a Japanese director, is to put them in that box. It separates them, categorizes them without regard to their work. As entertainment becomes more global, the diversity of filmmakers and filmmaking is heartening. Our genre has become an incredibly exciting place to be right now. And yet, the gender divide remains huge. And as much as I'd love this to be utopian, the flood favors the white male. This is in spite of the fact that in the last few years, some of the most exciting, visionary, unique films in the genre have been made by women. Coralie Fargia's Revenge and Julia Ducourneau's Raw from France, Jennifer Kent's The Babadook from Australia, The Homegrown The Invitation by Karen Kusama, and Mexico's Tigers Are Not Afraid by Isa Lopez are powerful, original, wildly varied movies that are my favorites of the last few years. That they were all made in different countries, reflecting different societies, and come from female filmmakers should be beside the point. And it is. And yet, to some, it is not. I'm eager for more intelligent, original, mind-blowing movies like these, no matter where they come from. I want to be taken to places where I might not have gone on my own, to see stories that come from a different place of reference than my own. Give me new places, new ideas, new experiences to cherish, and I will love you forever. Mexican writer-director Isa Lopez has created one of the most special genre films I've seen in a while. It's astonishing that this magical, accomplished film was created by someone who specialized in romantic comedy. We'll dive into the magical world she created in Tigers Are Not Afraid after this. 
Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts like Postmortem. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the original run of Fangoria magazine. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic and Puppet Master The Littlest Reich are streaming on Shudder now. And by the way, so is Nightmare Cinema. Let's talk about how this transition came about. You spent years writing and directing for television. I mean, uh, the um, Labyrinth of Passion was 80 episodes of a TV series that was not horrific. Um, you dealt Depends a lot on with... the point of view. Depends on the point of view, <laughs> okay. if it was horrific or not. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. But you really established yourself as a master uh, maestra of um, romantic comedy, music, you know, really more lighthearted fare, although it seems to be informed by social uh, commentary as well. Tell me uh, how that came about. Well, uh, you know, Mick, and, and I think you recognize this, and it's, as you said, regardless of geography or borders, which are perfectly imaginary. Uh, when you start in this career, you will jump on any opportunity that you find. When I went into film school, um, it felt like a pretty hopeless decision in the sense that only eight movies were made in Mexico average around that time. And of course, those eight movies were directed by men. Of course. Uh, well, so it's a my chances were particularly uh, male-dominated society in Mexico. It is, it is. And uh, and the film industry is, and especially back then, was male-dominated around the world. And um, so it, it felt like, like a wild dream, the idea that I could ever direct a movie. But I was so in love and obsessed with cinema that it felt... Uh, completely fake to go into any other careers. And I tried. I, I went to archaeology school. I love history. But I felt that I needed to at least attempt telling stories in visual form. So at the beginning, uh, the, the one way to pay the rent that I could see was making uh, writing at the beginning uh, Mexican melodrama, telenovelas, which was back then, and it still is, incredibly, a huge exporting uh, content for, for the entire world. Back then, it's not the same now. This is, of course, before streaming. But um, back then, Mexican telenovelas were consumed in China, in Italy, in Russia, and around the world. So the first job that I could find was ghost writing for for soap operas and the credit was i was writing every single script and it was not 80 it was 240 and oh i had to God. deliver yes and i had to deliver one a day 21 <laughs> pages a day um and i didn't have the credit as a writer uh i 
I, I of course I didn't know this. I was really young, and when I finally, I was super excited when the when the the telenovela came uh, on air. Um, I I saw that my my credit was additional dialogue, oh. and I had written every single script. Oh my god! Um, so you know, you 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 fight the battles. Um, you need to pay the rent. You take the check. You learn. And uh, let me tell you something. Uh, having to churn 21 pages a day, you do learn a thing or two of, of how to structure a scene and how to... You break a lot of a lot of eggs making that omelet, you know? And, and it's fine. It's a telenovela. It's fun, to, too. To be able to make your living telling stories is pretty special, regardless of how good that living is. At that point, it, it was still unbelievable that I had found the job that I was actually writing something that I that I, I could turn the TV on and see. You know, those were my words. And, and it was incredible. And there was my name, even if that was not what I did exactly. That was my name. You know, my father could see it and my friends could see it. It was so exciting. Um, and then you become more savvy. And eventually I started, you know, it didn't matter that you didn't get the credit. People knew who had written the thing and it was very successful so i started to get offers to to write uh, soap operas where i actually had the credit and mm -hmm. it was very frustrating because um i would love every episode that i wrote let me tell you even though i had to deliver so many pitches i was excited to find something else and something new a new new way to do it and break the rules if i could and there were many rules to soap operas <laughs> yeah. um but uh, but then they would be uh, produced and directed in, in parts part of this massive machinery, uh, and the quality would be so underwhelming. However, the mm -hmm. ratings were very good, so it was a very hard argument to try to convince people that they were not doing it right, that it could be better. So eventually, they fired me because I was a pain in the butt, <laughs> complaining <laughs> about every single creative decision fighting for everything, fighting for credit, for fighting for more money for the writing team. And eventually they got rid of me. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't blame anybody. I would have done too. Mm -hmm. And it was as every single time that I've lost a job and I've lost many, <laughs> it was a blessing because it, it forces you to, to go into something new and, uh, and since you're going to go through the motions, why not make it into something that you truly care for? So I went for, for script writing for movies. And this is around the time that Mexican cinema started to revive and to resuscitate. And it happened, oddly enough, because the multiplexes came back. And suddenly there was a space for a tiny Mexican comedy to compete with the Phantom Menace, say, right, right. and uh, and make some money and 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 present some competition to the Phantom Menace, which nobody saw coming. And what it was is, I think, Mexican audiences and Latin American audiences are were thirsty for their own humor and their own characters and things they could recognize, and it was humor. So comedies started to connect powerfully. I was singled out very quickly because I was a woman. And um, and what it was, was um, reverse, um, what is the word? Um, 
sexism? Yeah, well, that that is it. But it's um, I called it. Well, it'll, it'll come back. I what I'm saying is because I was a woman, mm-hmm. I got the job to write a romantic comedy. There at that point, no rom coms have been done in Mexico in ages. But the producers felt that um, that a woman's touch was going to be nice because who knew romance but women? That's Certainly right. I was a wrong type. I I had been <laughs> divorced at least once back then. Uh, <laughs> what did I know about romance? But I took the job. And, um, and I made a very raunchy romantic comedy. And it wasn't very big hit back then in Mexico. It opened against The Return of the King. And it did very good numbers. It was the first one I wrote. It was Ladies' Night. Ladies' Night. Please don't watch that. Do me a favor. (laughs) Don't watch that. I I learned very quickly that the experience I had in TV was replicated in cinema. That if I didn't have the the access to direct the movie and have control of the result, it can turn out to be a very, very horrendous thing. So you so became Preston Sturgis, basically. Yeah, yes. Preston <laughs> yes. Sturgis was the first writer-director, and he said, yeah, you can have this script, but only, and you can have it for a dollar, but only if I only can Only if direct. I directed. That exactly happened to me. You know, I, I didn't know Preston Sturgis was that case. But yeah. I, I'm happy because, well, Sturgis, so... The thing is, I I saw the movie. I thought it was unwatchable. Uh, however, it was a massive hit, and that opened a lot of doors for me. So when when it was the major studios that realized that suddenly there was a chance of making movies in local language, they came to me and they said, "What else do you have?" I said, "I have this, but I want to direct it." Mm-hmm. And it was not a romantic comedy. I never. I would never direct a romantic comedies. I can deliver them. The mechanics are there. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't put two years of my creative life as a filmmaker uh, behind a rom-com because basically a rom-com is not what I'm going to watch uh, at the cinema if I have a different choice. Right, you don't go... want to make what you're not going to watch. Yeah. Exactly. So I, But I like comedies. I love them. So I wrote a coming-of-age comedy about the horrors of turning 30 that back then seemed the end of the world in a way <laughs> and it is it is a, it's an important number because you're not longer a, a young kid trying to feel you're an adult now and whatever right. you made of your life you have to continue with so i made a comedy about that it was it did very well it was warner brothers it was very well received in spite of how bitter the humor was and uh, and I got respect as a director finally. And uh, the thing is, n- not unrelated to my own work. Now Mexican comedies were successful. So there's always been, and it's still going on in Mexico, a thirst for when it's Mexican cinema for it to be comedies. Um, and I knew how to do it. It was fun. I was doing it, and I did it for a number of years. I sold a lot of scripts in order to make a good living, and I directed some of them to go and take some risks. But deep down, what I wanted was to go into the universe that I had been obsessed my entire life, which was genre, horror, uh, literature, horror movies, comic books, science fiction, 
you name it. It's what made me become a filmmaker in the first time. And I was looking for an opportunity to go there. Well, let's go back then. Let's rewind a little bit in the life of Isa Lopez and your childhood. What uh, were the influences of your childhood? Did you watch a lot of television? Did you go to the cinema a lot? Did you have a comfortable family background, a supportive family of your interests? Tell me what life was like for little Isa. Well, what happened there is um, my mother died when I quite unexpectedly when I was eight years old. Oh, and, uh, well, you know, it, it feels pretty distant, of course. And I always, my, my standard answer to the I sorry normal thing that you get when you, when you tell this was, it's fine, you know, it, you get over it. Right. But I don't know if you really do. And mm. I think you carry the ghost of, of the people you lose at that age forever. And that's what Tigers is in the end. It's a story about a girl carrying the ghost of her mother because she never had a chance to say goodbye properly. So, of course, it was a terrible thing that that defined who I am. But the truth is I owe a lot to the the character that, that had to happen in order to survive emotionally something like that. And my particular response was to escape into a, a world, a wider world, where death was not necessarily final, mm. and where things had an explanation that that horrible, random things didn't happen just because, but but because there were bigger forces that we couldn't completely figure out, and and I believed. Because I didn't uh, believe in a God in the way that established religion gives us. My mother was Catholic, um, which is what happens with most of the people in Latin America is Catholicism. But my father was a communist and an atheist. And my father was the one that ended up taking the big bulk of raising me and my younger sister after my mother passed. Mm-hmm. So those two conflicting personalities, the very rational, pragmatist communists that worried and worked in the real world, and the more spiritual side of my mother that believed both in the mysteries of Catholicism, but also in, in curses and ghosts and, and a little bit of witchcraft and a, and a different universe. The conflict between those forces is what I think is at the center of every story I tell. Right. So when if you watch Tigers, very much at the center of it, you have two lead characters, one female and one male, and they're kids. And the boy sustains that we are all there is. And it's mm-hmm. up to us to make it or succumb trying to make it through the realities of this world. And the female character knows that there are other forces at play and that the dead are not really dead ever, that they come with you, they're part of you. And there's deals that that need to be struck with higher powers. And the conflict between those two two visions of the world is what sustains the movie. And it's what things intrigues me. Well, it's fascinating because there's no 
doubt that this is a personal movie. When you're watching this, it feels like it comes from a very deep place in someone's heart, in the filmmaker's heart. And as writer and director, it couldn't be more personal in that sense. And the sense of magical realism that is so much a part of Latin art uh, for centuries, um, it takes place there. But also it's so important that there really aren't adults in this. There are antagonists who are adult, but primarily this is a world of children. It's Oliver Twist without Fagin. And I find that really <laughs> fascinating um, that, that you've been able to create so believably this world in Mexico of children living underground without parents. Well, I think it was informed uh, by this whole literature and 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 cinematic experience that I held on with such faith when I was younger, you know, and things like, you know, it's amazing that you mentioned Oliver Twist. It's the Dickensian side of it. I, I never, you know, I never completely registered, but it's very oh, true. It's deep. Uh, but uh, there's a there's a part of it that is uh, Peter Pan with Wendy, definitely, mm -hmm. and, and and living in a place where the adults are Captain Hook and they're a threat and and magical creatures, and um, and then there's a side of it that definitely is um, the Goonies and Stand by Me, which is based on the body. And, uh, and Eat by Stephen King. And this entire idea of a gang of young kids uh, getting together to go through an adventure on their own was something that obsessed me when I was growing up. Hmm. Well, it's even deeper than that in that these kids' lives are together. They're just not off on an adventure. They are living full-time an adventure. And that makes a big difference in the world that you've set up here. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in the creative choices and how you work. The whole film is shot handheld. It's got a documentary style, except it is so beautifully staged and lit and photographed that even though it's handheld and gritty and realistic and documentary-like in that sense, it also has a theatrical sense to it as well. And then against this very real world, gritty filmmaking style, are fantastic state-of-the-art visual effects, visual, uh, digital effects. And that marriage is very uncommon and it really works like gangbusters. And, and I, I, I'm just curious how the, the concept and the design, visual design of the film came to you. Well, you just spotted it perfectly, perfectly. And I'm very glad because that's exactly what I was going for. Again, the the clash between the, these two visions of the universe, the ultra real, um, and the 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 world it takes place in, which is a, a gang war ravaged Mexican town. I wanted to portray that and the 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 feeling of that place in the camera style to for it to feel a little bit like a war documentary, indeed and shoot it from the point of view of the kids. So all the angles are low at the, mm. at the height of them. And, uh, and it's very yumpy and it's frequently hiding behind objects. So right. we, the audience, can feel like one of them that, you know, is nervous and jumping around and, and hiding behind objects. 
But at the same time, I wanted to keep the audience aware that this was also a magical world where supernatural things could happen around any, every single corner. Hence the light and the, the feeling that it was a movie. It's on one, it should feel on one hand documentary, but on the other hand, cinematic. And that was a tough marriage to have to you. And, and, and I'm very glad you spotted it. Uh, oh, it's, I, it's so well maintained throughout. It, it's very hard to make a combination of creative styles, weave them together and have it work from beginning to end. And when it first happens and it shows up, there's a bloodline running along the ground uh, that follows and then leads at other times. And it's very subtle and you can miss it the first time around. And then little flying creatures and, and the tiger of the title, the toy tiger, taking on a life of its own. It's, it's magical. It's a film about children that is not for children in any way. That was a really part, a hard part about getting it funded and selling it was a movie that is, uh, yeah, exactly, it's a children's movie, not for children. <laughs> and and it, of course the people that, that, that pay the bills of making movies, they were like, but so who's who's going to watch it you know if the characters are kids but not is not kids who are going to consume it we're confused right. and uh and i had to talk about the references uh, <laughs> uh in the movie because say stand by me is about young kids but the subject matter is is, is very very dark very dark and if you throw in the mix of that movies like Beasts of the Southern Wild, or like... Well, for um, me, um, uh, The Devil's Backbone has a lot of influence completely. on it. Completely. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more than Pan's Labyrinth. The movie is frequently compared, which is such an honor and, and keeping yeah. all the distances, to Pan's Labyrinth. But the truth of the matter is The Devil's Backbone is way more of an influence on the movie because it's this bunch of kids, orphans, again, um, trying to make sense of an adult world and an adult conflict and trying to survive the evils of adults. Did you have this feeling when, when you were eight and lost your mother? Was your father away at work? Did you spend much time with him or did you feel like you were kind of in a child's world at that time? Well, my father, he was in a, um, an academic he um, he died in 2010, uh, which was also young, but but it allowed me for for uh, to, for me to become an adult right. with an adult taking care of us. So my father was in the academic world, and he had to work a lot in order to to keep us afloat. Mm -hmm. Difficultly, because in Mexico, when you're a college professor. It, I don't think anywhere in the world, by the way, but in Mexico, certainly, you make very little money when you're a college professor. So he had to work a lot. And um, and my sister and I would uh, spend a lot of time um, on our own. Uh, there was uh, a nanny at home that was part of the difficulties of paying the bills. Mm. And the nanny would change constantly. So we had a, a constant influx of of 
culture from around Mexico. If we had women or girls that came from northern Mexico or southern Mexico, and they would come home with the legends and the stories and the local myths of their little pueblos, which informed also my work. And um, and I'm trying. I'm I'm working right now on a script that is trying to incorporate that mythology. But the other thing is, we spent a lot of time with my cousins. Um, and it was us two girls and another girl and two boys. And, uh, and we would be such a handful, the five of us. And, uh, and we would play all day long. This is back when you could have a gang of friends in, in a city, in a major city, and just go to the park and spend all day out in your bikes, which today doesn't happen anymore. But right. we created a world of our own and our own mythos and our, uh, we would do plays and write our stuff. And all of that little gang of kids, uh, sacred place for me, I think is in Tigers. And tell me about that childhood. What were the things that you watched, that you read, that you, that you did? Did you draw? Did you play music? What were your endeavors? I wish I played music. You know, it's... Uh, it's the one thing that if I had another turn in this <laughs> in this uh, fairy's wheel, I would change because I love music. I, do, I don't have, as much as I adore it and I'm obsessed with it, I don't think I truly have a musical bone in my body. <laughs> so, which makes my, my love for it the, the, the more sweeter and sadder. But, um, but no music, no. I did draw, I love drawing. I, I adored comic books. Um, my first contact with comic books was not superhero comic books, but because my father was um, a college professor specializing in visual semiotics. Ah. Um, he, he was, um, he did that a, a number of years uh, about the history and origins of comic books and comic strips. And, uh, and in my house, so we had a lot of, of very, very early comics like uh, Little Nemo wow. and that, that type of stuff. And then all the European comic books like mm. Valerian et Lori and, um, and Asterix et Obelix and um, um, what became heavy metal in the U.S., which right. in, Euro in, in Europe was Metal Hurlant. Right. Um, all those science fiction comic books were feeding me. And they were very adult, by the way, very yeah. adult. Well, it's there interesting. Was a My father had gone to art school and wanted to be uh, do comic strips, and he wrote mm -hmm. them and illustrated them, and they were fantastic, but he never was able to make a go of it, gave it up completely, and went into real estate and uh, finally <laughs> made his living there, but never drew again. Yeah. But there you go. I think that in a way that manifests in you going out and creating images as yeah. an expression. I think I think so many times we are able to manifest what the frustrations of our parents. Yeah. Um, both mom and dad, in my case, were absolutely obsessed and uh, you know throughout their entire lives with with literature. My father with comics books too, but uh, cinema was a passion of uh, both of them, and um, and books. I, I grew up in a tiny, tiny apartment in the projects in Mexico, 
mm. that was there were there was no space in the walls because every single wall was covered in books. Wow. Um, and uh, we didn't have a VCR when everybody had a VCR because we were so broke. Mm. But uh, but I would we were able to go to see double bills and triple bills in the in the local cinema all the time. So I was doing uh, a steady mix of the movies that my generation was consuming, like Goonies and 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 like uh, young Sherlock Holmes and uh, and uh, uh, E.T. All the am- and yeah, hmm? all the Exactly. All the yeah. ambling ones. Yeah. And and I adore them. But on the other hand, my father would, from, from the time we were very young, make us at the beginning, and eventually you develop a taste, watch the Fellinis and the Antonionis and the Tarkovskis and the Bergmans. So wow. there's a lot of in Tigers, there's a lot of Goonies, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of in the aesthetics and the places, there's a lot of love letters and love notes Tarkovsky. If if you if you look carefully, those abandoned places flooded oh, yeah. with water, and um, and there's a lot of Fanny and Alexander, the Bergman mm. movie, which is one of the most impactful things I've ever seen about children walking right. with the ghosts. Right. And um, and all of that uh, boiled together, and I think eventually gave birth to tigers. Well, there's so much of the culture of Mexico in tigers, um, the, the, the magical realism, the, the, the street activity, the criminal activity going on and the like. It seems like it could only have been made by a Mexican filmmaker in Mexico. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, but I think that that's precisely what has given the movie the the incredible and apparently non-stopping international love it has received. And I think in part is because it's so intimately and ultimately Mexican, what made it in a way international, you know? So many times we hear this thing that the more specific you can get, the more universal it will eventually end up being. Yeah. And we hear this, and I don't think we completely understand something like that on the, until it happens. And uh, you've been there with me. I've, I've played the movie in so many different countries with so yeah. many different languages. Yeah, and, I saw it uh, in Amsterdam when we met, and it was—it just blew me away. It was fantastic. And Thank so you. this has been three years now, and it's just coming out on on physical media after having a, a run on Shutter. Um, and it's so great that places like Shutter exist to be able to give the genre crowd, the intelligentsia of the genre crowd, something other than just slasher movies to look forward to. And I, the- I love what they're doing. The mix of what they're putting together is brilliant, I think. It's great. But the festival experience has been a very important part of this. There aren't really comedy film festivals or drama film festivals. But so I know that you had a lot of festival success on your previous films, but there wasn't the worldwide availability of a genre festival audience until Tigers. And I'm sure that had to have changed the course of your life in a lot of ways. Completely. Completely. The thing with with the movie, I think I might have told you this. I don't, I'm not sure. Is after I finished it uh, for an entire year, a whole year, 
I sent the movie out to every uh, major art house cinema. Uh, so it, I sent it to Sundance, to South by Southwest, Tribeca, uh, Berlin, uh, Venice, eh, all of them. I sent it and it was rejected on every single one of them. I did not. And I, for an entire year, Mick. Oh and uh, you, when you get the the rejection letter from the fourth and the fifth and the sixth festival, it doesn't matter how sure you are of the little movie you made and what you have to say. When rejection after rejection after rejection keeps piling up, you do question so many things about the movie, certainly, but about you as a filmmaker. And, you know, because I felt at that time, no doubt, that that was the best movie I could do with what I had. Mm. And it was simply not enough for, for the festival circuit. So after an entire year, and, I, and when I was considering sending it again to Toronto uh, under a different title to see <laughs> if maybe they didn't realize, I and, I, and I caught myself like, well, this is ridiculous. And, uh, and the stubbornness is fine, but, but this is not going to work. And, uh, and I was ready to give up after an entire year. I went to bed that night. And uh, but I woke up and I said, well, you know what? There is a general festivals. And uh, even though the movie it, it exists as both an art house in a way, but it's definitely, definitely a horror movie and a ghost story and a supernatural tale. So what the hell is try? And I sent it to Fantastic Fest. They immediately took it. Of course. And, uh, and it became... The funny thing is, then the other festivals started asking. And, uh, and when I conveyed that they had rejected it, they were so surprised. They were like, we never got it. We never received it. And I was like, here's the form. <laughs> and here's the rejection letter. You know? You so, snobs. Yeah. <laughs> So it makes you question the screening process, and I hope it has changed since. I'm I'm hopeful too, uh, but our genre does seem to exist as a gutter genre, even when it's done on such a high level as as your film. It's uh, the funny thing is the two genres I've worked on, which are comedy and horror, mm. are frowned upon both of them. But no award, yeah. <laughs> no award, but no awards. Recently, horror, as you know, as we all know, beautifully is being accepted. I don't. I hope it lasts. Um, and and a lot of people that were not into horror now are saying that it is elevated horror, whatever that yes. means. And it's it's very difficult for me that term because it's it, insulting. Yeah, it's insulting for every effort that has been done before. Um, and every major work of art that has been done in the genre. Um, but here's the thing with comedy and horror. They are the two toughest genres. There's nothing harder to direct than a good comedy or a good horror movie. So much so that so many of them are not good. And then <laughs> right. in both genres. And uh, and we we watch a lot of not good comedies when you like comedy to to get the really amazing ones that you will laugh every single time you watch and same with horror they're incredibly tempting because we love both feelings we adore 
to laugh out loud like nothing in the world. And we love to be truly scared, yes. you know? And both things will take you away from your everyday life very powerfully. So, you know, and then there's a, th a third genre that I haven't tried, and I don't know if I would. And there are so many few directors that have been successful at them, which is the horror comedy. Yes. But when they get it right, it can be both very funny and very scary at times. And there are such unique movies. And there you have, I'm sorry, but Ghostbusters. Oh, it's great. Has these amazing horror sequences and amazing, really well said, scary moments. And it's one of the funniest movies out there. So to get those right, my respect. That's yeah. That's to be just scary. To be scary and funny is very difficult to pull off. And mm -hmm. uh, when it does happen, an American Werewolf in London, The Howling, I've done one or two myself, and and you know put your you put your soul yeah. into the laughter and the fear, and yeah. not, try not to stint on either. And my my hats are off to the people who've pulled it off as well. Uh, you're but, one of them. You 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 well, you completely yeah. got it with with your creatures too. It has <laughs> these incredibly scary, chilly moments, and it's so funny. You know. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Well, let's go back to Tigers because the casting is quite remarkable. Every one of these kids feels exactly real. They do not feel like actors. They don't feel like they're reading dialogue. They're reciting dialogue. They are living in this world that you've created. Tell me about that casting process. It was tremendous. <laughs> we, saw, we saw 600 children oh my to God. find those five. Um, not me personally. I saw only 200. Oh, uh, yeah. But... Uh, but uh, yes, I, I was even from the when I was started on the first scenes of the script, I knew that finding these five kids was going to be a huge challenge. And it was because what I was looking for was performances to that didn't feel like a performance. And that's part of what you were mentioning earlier of the movie feeling in part as a documentary. And, and f I think in order for the supernatural elements to truly surprise us, uh, given the fact that I didn't have all that money to make a lot of visual effects, the few that I had had to be very well executed and had to belong in an ultra real world where everything felt ultimately real, starting with the kids and the performances. So to, to be out looking for performers that do not perform is one of the most difficult things I've done. So giving the kids the scenes themselves um, was not useful. I wrote a couple of reefs on the themes of the movie just to see the kids and see their energy and what they brought to the test because it was more about that. It was more about who they were and the energy they had to work with and create something and the tools for performing because whatever they thought they knew about performing, I needed to clean and get out of the way to get to a place where it was not a performance. And uh, and finding those those five was tough. It was also so much fun. You know, it was a tremendous amount of work. But because of a lot of that of the work we did was improvising, and I would take three of them, sit them, sit them, sit them down, and say. 
So here's the deal. There is a story about a tiger that got loose and is roaming the streets. And you're going to tell me the story. Take it. And the kids would come up with this incredible thing that I wish I could write. Because they were amazing. You know, I had, at some point, I had twins. And I, I was very tempting to take the twins and put them in the movie. But they were beyond, you know, they were, there was no controlling those two twins. So <laughs> at the very end, they were not in the movie. But those two twins were, they would take what one said and the other one would answer. And it was so much fun to go. Like one of them would say, there is a tiger. And the, and the first one would say, and he wanted a diamond. <laughs> and the other one was like, and meat, but with diamonds. <laughs> you can't write that. It was gorgeous. And some stuff I took and I put into the movie, the energy, the humor, and, uh, and it informed what I ended up with, I think. So how much experience had these kids had? Close to none. Um, most of them, none. And uh, I think a couple of them had done a commercial here or there, or one of them had done like a beat part, a tiny beat part in a, in a, a educational TV series or something like that. Some of them had acting classes uh, that they found in some community center. But uh, the, the first part of the work, and I enlisted the help of a Brazilian um, a casting director and uh, who also is an acting coach. Her name is Fatima Toledo, just to work for two weeks with me. One was the final week of casting to decide the final five. And it was fascinating because we both agreed on a bunch of things and it was great. But for example, for the role of Estrella, and the central character. Mm-hmm. She didn't like my decision. My decision was Paola who played the character. And, um, and it was interesting, you know, because it made me, I heard her arguments and I kept going with that casting and I saw again a bunch of girls and I, in the end I just went with my gut instinct. And it was very scary because you're working with this expert. But there's something that I saw in Paola that I knew that I could get Estrella from. And um, and it was super interesting. But then the second week we worked together, her work and my work was a lot more about forget what you think you know about coming and acting. Just what we know about acting, which is respond to what's happening right now, right here. There's nothing out there. There's nothing after what's happening right here. And, uh, and we shot the movie without the kids ever seeing a single page of the script. They never read a single line of dialogue. Really? And they didn't know the story. Some of the situations, some of the situations that we were going to explore in the movie, we worked with them um, in prep, the general situation, and they knew who the characters were and what the, what the situation, what the world was. And they created the relationship and the chemistry between them during prep. When we got to the set, we shot the movie chronologically, which was such a luxury. And and the kids discovered along the way what was going to happen to them. And uh, that brought so much surprise and so much real reactions to what they were giving me. And did you find yourself adjusting to these different personalities as they became clear during production? And you go, oh... 
this kid would do this and, and allow yourself the, the ability to kind of change on a dime? It's, this sounds like coming from a lot of expertise, you know. <laughs> I can sense that you you've been through the road I was on the road. I was. That's exactly how it works. So that's something that only someone that had to do that would know. <laughs> that's true. That's how it works exactly. That whatever you think you know about uh, directing actors is the same way that whatever they thought they knew about acting was not going to help anybody. My uh, my experience in directing actors was not going to help anybody um, in, in directing these kids. It was, I honestly think it was more my experience in dealing with human beings. And uh, and the problems I was going to face as a director had more to do with my problems with dealing with human beings than okay. with dealing with actors. Um, and, I, and you have to overcome them. You, ideally, ideally, you become a better person by by directing honestly. I, that's what I think. I still believe that. But um, what happened here is for uh, uh, the kid that plays Shine, uh, his name is Juan Ramon, and he's an incredible actor. Hmm. Uh, he just has it in him to go to incredible places, emotional places with such honesty. But he's an orphan himself. And hmm. uh, you know, his parents died in, for natural causes. Uh, you know, he knows the rage and the energy and the confusion and the anger that comes with that. Why, that and, was really, um, really evident in the movie. So strong. It, you can see it in his eyes. And uh, and Paola, who is a completely different creature, she's, she's a pampered girl in a mm. lovely kind of way. But, you know, she's a girly girl and, and teddy bears and mommy's girl and completely different creatures, which worked amazing in the movie because that clash was strong right. and and I could use it. Uh, but um, that, to work with Paola, because she knew that she had to fight to get that part, you know, she knew that, that Fatima didn't want her to get the role. So Smart Girl came to me at some point and said, and you know, she, the girl was 11. And she says, I know there's doubts. I want to tell you that I will work with you if you trust me. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I'm, I'm looking you in the eye and I'm going to go with you and you're going to get me through this. And she did. So when it gets tough emotionally for her, because the gods know, make that that character goes to very scary, dark places. Fair. And in order to get that performance of fear, which is the toughest emotion to capture in film, I think. I'm convinced yeah. of her tigers. Paola had to be scared herself. And um, and she was willing to take the leap and get very scared with me and create a little moment of fear outside of the set between us. And then I would tell her to close her eyes, bring her back to the set and, and say, go. And then she would have nightmares. And I would have to, you know, for the first week, which was so scary for me because you're responsible for this kid. Yeah, they were your fault. <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't want to be responsible for anybody's therapy. And uh, yeah, too late. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Audiences are is fine. I'll take the responsibility. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I brought her back and I said, listen, here's a trick. And it is a trick. When I say action, that woman is a ghost. 
and she came for you and it's your mom and all of the horrible things that were. But when I say caught, that is Viviana, our friend. Viviana, come say hi. We can't have lunch. And you know this. And your mom is fine. And this is a movie. But you want to be an actor. And she would just say yes. So you have to develop this talent that every actor has. No, not true. We know that's not true. (laughs) The moment that is on, it's true. And the moment that is, that I say cut, is off. And if you don't have it, you can't be here. And she simply did. She managed. It was amazing. And with Shiny, it was a completely different thing. We had to find rage. And we had to find a grief, a deep grief. But Juan knows those emotions. And I do too, because I love my parents. So um, it would be a little bit of the same. He would get incredibly worked up and angry and you can see it in the movie and when I said cut he would be stuck in those emotions because there when you're repressing those emotions on a daily basis and finally you get to a place where it's like go and you let them go it's very hard to stop them and the beauty of working with children though is that if you tell them that they can stop now they actually can because you're telling them they can Mm-hmm. and they trust you, they will, which is a luxury you don't have with actors. <laughs> you know? I don't think that because you say so, this is going to happen. Right, right. It will trust you if you earn that trust, that emotional bridge, and they well, will come with you. This had to be a great education for you as well, as a writer-director of comedies where the dialogue was very important, that the actors deliver it as you wrote it, to give that up in this completely different circumstance. How was that experience? It was, it, it's a joy. I mean, I, uh, as, as, as much as in comedy you have to rely on the, on the structure and the snappy end, I've always, perhaps one of the things I enjoy the most about the, the task of movie making is working with actors and, and casting is always very important because you have to find someone in an ideal world where it's not about the the star uh for the for the box office or whatever it is when you actually have created choices you have to be very much aware that you're picking people that you're going to collaborate with for the next bunch of months you're going to live with them and then you're going to have to cut a movie looking at their faces <laughs> for another year, you know, mixing the sound and everything. So rather pick people you like and you communicate with and you can play with. Because in the end, what it is, I think, making movies is about getting together with your friends, with your gang, going back to what you were asking about the experience of getting together with a, with a gang of kids to create our own universe. Making movies for me is like that is being able to access that world I lost of playing with my cousins and my sister. Mm-hmm. So what I do as an adult is I I make my movies and, and, and all of these friends of mine, we come together for a bunch of months to play together in this pretend world. And the gorgeous thing is at the end of it, you end up with something you can keep forever, which is the movie. Yeah. So with actors, it's that way. I pick them uh, because I find that there's a communication and an understanding of the character. And from the casting process, I love to be surprised with things I didn't see when I was writing the character and they found and they can bring and show me. 
And then throughout rehearsing, and I do, I'm known in Mexico for rehearsing for months, sometimes six months. I rehearsed my first movie for a year and a half. Oh my God. And uh, rehearsing is a wrong word because it sounds like we're practicing the scenes, but we're not. We do work a lot on the scenes that are not in the movie, meaning what happens between this scene and that scene. And I let them create it, which informs all of us about the characters. And then in the scene itself, we go through the dialogue and then we throw it away and we go again and, and see what we find. And if there's something essential that was lost or some beat that needs to be hit harder, that's the work as a director. But the rest, I always feel that when I'm doing my job right, the only thing I had to do is a step back and, and just steer in one direction or the other and let it go. Let the best people do their best work. Exactly. Yeah. They know, you know, you pick them right, they know what they're doing. Well, uh, another very important part of this movie and of the world of this movie, it's all shot on locations. And how you did that location scouting and how you acquired those locations, because they're incredibly impressive and they had to have guided the direction of the story once you discovered them. Completely. The Again, because we didn't have the money required to create those universes that that ghost that magic ghost town that i dreamt of the only thing we could do was look for them look for the places that could give me that feel and mexico city is as you know a massive massive place and if you explore it uh you're gonna find pretty much everything you're looking for so a lot of people is even in mexico is very surprised that the movie was shot in mexico city they don't know where it was shot it's it, all of it was shot in mexico city um and we what we did is we had a very small crew of scouters and and people doing wrecks for us looking for uh the places that i that i that i felt had the feeling so i gave them there were lists in the script in the original script for, for example, the final climatic scene takes place in the movie in an abandoned spa. But in the script, it was an abandoned doll factory. Mm. Uh, because ages ago, when I was directing segments of Sesame Street, <laughs> I made a tiny documentary on how dolls are made. And it was the creepiest place on earth. There was not a chance of doing one shot that was not creepy. And this is Sesame Street. So later... Decades later, I go like, I'm going to shoot the final scene in that doll factory. There's no doll factories left in Mexico because all the dolls come from China. Right. So I went to the to the locations team and I said, this is the feel of what I'm looking for. And I show them, I kid you not, a couple of thousand photographs of what is called um, internationally uh, abandoned porn. <laughs> Be careful when you Google that. <laughs> yeah. But the truth is, it's there's people around the world obsessed with exploring urban exploring, urban exploring of abandoned places. So I wanted that look, that haunted look of places that were abandoned and regained by nature. And um, and they got it, and they went out and they found some amazing places. We saw abandoned hospitals, abandoned hotels. We actually shot in an abandoned hotel. And, uh, and we would turn that into, with little elements, because we didn't have a lot, you know, an old typewriter. 
um, uh, an abandoned escape into yeah. this um, fairy tale ghost land. Well, that's that's the thing too. I don't think you were hampered by this. The fact is, I don't think you could have built sets as fantastic and detailed as the actual locations that you found. Well, you make gains of your losses. Is what yeah. happens, you know. Well, lemonade out of lemons, yeah. It's true, and uh, and so many times, like, and you know this, Mick, the constrictions that you're facing turn out to be the biggest asset in movies. I'm a far believer in that. Absolutely. Now, you were influenced by the work of Guillermo del Toro, and now you are collaborating on Guillermo with something to come up. Can you talk about it? Yes, I can. I can because he did, you know? I was I was being very discreet, and then Guillermo, <laughs> in some interview for some other project was, some of the reporters asked about our collaboration, and he said, yeah, it's a werewolf movie, it's a Western, and I was like, there we go. <laughs> I was very happy because I'm so excited about this. Um, you know, when I when the movie started, uh, the circuit finally, and uh, and I started getting the reviews. Of course, it was uh, compared with Guillermo's work uh, in the sense of the massive influence that his work is. Um, and uh, at some point, uh, after me trying for years to get Guillermo to first read the script and then watch the movie. I didn't know him, but I was trying to get to him somehow. Yeah. He watched the movie and as I suspected would happen, he, he really responded and became a champion of it and I started recommending it and it's, it's been gorgeous. But uh, after he got the Oscar for The Shape of Water, uh, three days later or so, he went to Mexico and um, reached out and said, let's listen, I'm going to produce a movie for you to write and direct. So we started going through ideas and, um, and eventually he came to me and said, um, there's this idea. It's a, it's a werewolf movie and it's a Western. And those two together for me was like, <laughs> I would want that tomorrow. It's what we were saying at the beginning. You don't want to direct the movies that you wouldn't watch. I would watch the hell out of a wolf <laughs> Western. And I was in. And it's been, I delivered the second draft um, at the beginning of the lockdown. Uh, Guillermo is dealing with uh, his own uh, complicated situation in the sense of he was. I think it's back in the middle of principal photography of his own movie, Nightmare Alley, when uh, his production was one of the first that we heard it was, that was halted because of the situation. Right. So he has to juggle uh, that when any of us is able to go back to a set and we need to figure out how and when we're going to do that, um, he has to get the movie back on track. But in the meantime, I'm waiting for, for my notes. Um, yeah. actually, and uh, and working on other stuff, but uh, but you know, honestly, that's very close to my heart, and I can't wait to go on it. Well, I cannot think of a better creative marriage than you and Guillermo. It's such a great time. Well, Isa, thank you so much for spending an hour with us, and it's so great to catch up with you. And I can't wait to see you and to see what uh, your creative world holds for us next. Gracias. Gracias, Mick. Un placer. Uh, de nada. <laughs>
If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.